0: Hello, and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Monday, the 19th of October. Have you ever wondered about the seemingly chaotic responses made by the UK government in regard to the COVID-19 pandemic? What has that got to do with the Brexit issues? Dr. Ben Wellings, an expert on Brexit and the politics of nationalism and Euroscepticism in contemporary Europe, offers us a different understanding and perspective to these issues. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tomorrow's webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. Uh, in today's podcast, I will be speaking with Dr Ben Wellings. Dr Wellings, can you tell us about yourself?
1: Yeah, thank you, David. Uh, yes, um, my name is Dr Ben Wellings, and I'm uh, Head of Politics and International Relations at Monash University in Melbourne.
0: Was the UK's NHS in good shape before the COVID nineteen pandemic, and if not, what were the economic and political issues behind that?
1: Oh, David, I think I think that depends who who you ask. I mean, um, on, on the one hand, uh, the NHS is uh, venerated by the British public. It's it's one of the, the United Kingdom is is fracturing along all sorts of different cleavages, be it. Um, national, age, socioeconomic, educational, uh, and and so on. Uh, But one thing that people generally um, get behind is the National Health Service. And on the other hand, if you ask people who interact with the National Health Service, or perhaps if you speak to people who work within the National Health Service, there was always a sense that it was, um, in some ways, teetering on the brink. Uh, You know, uh, under-resourced, uh, you know, over pressured. Uh, there were all sorts of things that um, uh, probably people thought were wrong with it. And it's, it's, it's been one of those things that has resisted the type of privatization that we have seen in other areas of British public life since the 1980s. And that's, again, goes back to the place it holds in the British public uh, psyche. It's, it's the kind of the, the one enduring element of the post- Second World War reforms that, that really people can get behind. So I think that although there are a lot of people perhaps in government who would like to reform it, there are probably lots of people within the NHS who would like to, to reform it. Um, touching it, it becomes very difficult politically. And also it's been, it's been something of a political football as well. And we might, might develop that even before we got to, to COVID. Um, uh, it was playing a particularly important role in the Brexit uh, negotiations or, or in uh, the referendum, I should say. So, look, it, it, it is a venerated institution. It is part of the warp and weft of British public life. But at the same time, going into COVID, um, I think it was, um, you know, uh, uh, running on empty, perhaps is the way we would call that.
0: And you you mentioned that interesting word, uh, Brexit. And um, I'm really keen to understand what was going on behind this campaign. What really are the forces at work, the belief systems and the ideology?
1: OK, I think, I think to, to understand the politics of COVID, you need to understand the politics of Brexit. And that's why I think this is important. And the NHS, listeners might uh, know or, or remember, featured quite prominently in, in, the, in that campaign because it was claimed... Um, spuriously, that uh, if the United Kingdom stopped giving money to the EU, which it had to do as part of its budgetary contribution, that money would go straight back into um, the NHS. And we've, we've yet to see that dividend. But Brexit unleashed the kind of divisions which I think are playing out again in the, co- in the responses to the COVID pandemic. So you mentioned, David, ideologies. Now, ideologies, for me, are ideas that guide our thought and actions. And they help us rationalize what we're doing. Um, Now, of course, uh, most ideologies don't claim to be 100% truthful, but they certainly give a coherent worldview and help us understand um, why we or others behave in in the particular way that we do. So I I think when it comes to to Brexit, the link between Brexit and COVID, the, the important Ideology here is um, firstly neoliberalism, but secondly, a kind of a change that took place within conservative parties across Western democracies and, and English speaking uh, countries of the so called Anglosphere in the decade before COVID. And so, so, what I'm getting at is that, that um, there is a strong element of contemporary conservative ideology is the neoliberal ideology that government should do less, right? That the role of government is to step back as much as possible from explicitly from the economy, but implicitly from other areas. And that secondly, a kind of a more reckless conservatism grew up, if you like, a radical conservatism that sought to, that, that, that basically made the argument that um, the way that the current um, global order was set up was too restrictive on um things like people's liberties or nation's liberties or the economy and um and this had become an embedded and entrenched feature and so efforts to break out of that to if you like kind of liberate people's energies um had to be pretty extreme and variants of that underpin responses to the covid uh, pandemic in, in ways that you can imagine. So if you've got an ideology that suggests that the role of government is to do less, when a, when a, a major public health crisis comes along, it's not necessarily very well equipped to a spot the problem early, take it seriously, um, uh, or then mobilize resources in order to deal with it effectively, uh, or, e- or even kind of stick to plans that really violate, you know, their own, their own ideology about individual liberty, freedom uh, and, and economic activity. So, so there, there, I think, is the, is the current thread that runs from Brexit into, um, uh, into COVID. And in, and in, in the UK, um, they, they more or less ran into each other by a matter of weeks, if not days. So I think that understanding Brexit is actually quite important to understanding responses, government responses to COVID.
0: And it's a little bit frightening for me to hear that because if those thoughts, if you like, or belief systems are entrenched in the government, then what is the likelihood, Ben, that real effective action can be taken now for COVID?
1: It depends on the government because another another useful concept that, that I have for, for understanding all of this is the idea of dilem- traditions and dilemmas, right? And that is to say that when politicians with, with significant decision-making power or, or bureaucracies are presented with um, a novel situation and in particular a dilemma, you know, do we, do we lock down or do we not lock down? They'll fall back on their political traditions. So what, what I see in, in the United Kingdom and in particularly in England because, because of the way that the United Kingdom is structured, what the UK government does kind of counts for England. Um, Scotland has its own kind of health policy area going on and we see a different response there and this kind of goes to my point is that different political parties have different political traditions and the more left leaning ones are more comfortable with intervention because they have not to the same extent adopted um, the the ideology of um, individual liberty right so so they're a bit more collectivist in their in their instincts and I think that um, perhaps these, these sort of weren't as, as evident as, as they might have been before, but COVID has, has exacerbated things that, that were there already in the political realm. So what I, what I see in, in, in the United Kingdom, in Australia and in the United States is that more centre-left governments are happier with intervention than more centre-right governments. And I'm talking here at the, at the state or you know, in uh, in the United Kingdom's sense at the, at the devolved na- national legislature le- level, than than just the kind of nation-state government. So so first of all, there's a kind of a confused patchwork of different responses, yeah. and and this of course then makes it difficult for publics to decode what they're supposed to do uh, and where. So so I I what what I think that we see in the United Kingdom, and you know we might draw analogies with other countries here is that the UK government's response, which is to say England's response, is one that is guided by um, a reluctance to intervene. The the, the recklessness suggests that it shouldn't be taken seriously in the first place. Um, And and secondly, a reluctance to take kind of an overall coordinated response. Um, Because because these are very serious dilemmas. You know, the the economy versus the the public health. I mean, and I do understand... Um, from from reading other research that th- these are not um, polar opposites, that actually if you get the public health right, you get the economy right. But it's often framed as, as a dilemma like that. And I think that the, the, the conservative government in the UK's uh, ideological instincts would be to frame it as such as a, a dilemma and try and um, keep the economy going as much as possible. Um, but, but basically the kind of the, the more interventionist instincts where people were put on furlough in the United Kingdom and given 80% of their wage by the government, you know, there is only so much money to go around. Right. And that, that is why I think that there's this, been this reluctance in October in the United Kingdom to kind of go for either a kind of a circuit-breaking two-week two national lockdown um, or, or to do something more interventionist and effective. It's, it's just not in the ideological makeup. Uh, of the current Conservative Party to, to make that kind of intervention.
0: and uh, this thought just came through my mind, and I'm just not sure whether it's right or wrong, so here we go. It seems to me that the government's dealings with the pandemic is both predicated upon, if you like, get small, being better, and the economy is important. But you're also saying, probably saying, that If we frame the questions and issues correctly for the people, it is a chance for the people in England to understand that this is not all about economy and lockdowns. This is about how our government thinks. And it is a chance for us to ask the question, is this predominant ideology necessarily good for us in the long term?
1: i think you've you 've really hit the nail on the head david i mean and, and, and I think that there's there 's been a lot of um, criticism of this attitude towards uh, the economy that that isn 't necessarily good for us in the long run and and actually causes a lot of at the political, political level there 's been a backlash to it and and again come back to, to to brexit i mean one of the major explanations of brexit is that people wanted to send a a message to the status quo that that the way things were set up, not just with Britain's membership of the European Union, because referendums usually are not entirely or even predominantly about the thing that's on the, on the ballot paper. Uh, they just, just wanted to say, look, we've had enough. Right. And um, a lot of the, the UK government's rhetoric, particularly in the election late last year, which uh, you know it enabled brexit to happen because of this parliamentary majority that was that was gained by boris johnson 's Conservative party really focused on that sense of of anger, but I think that the, the, the problem there is that the more you talk down government in order to fix that problem, you know you, you erode trust and, and, I, and I think trust in politics is is incredibly important for effectively dealing with any Any issue, but it seems to be to de- to deal with the covid nineteen pandemic in particular and we, what we can say is that that, that people 's and i 'm drawing on other other people 's research here as well of course um, is that it seems that trust in government is is low but it, but initially in the united kingdom as in as in other places, there was you know what we call a rally round the flag effect and and you know you you might remember scenes from from italy and from the united kingdom of of people you know singing on balconies or clapping and cheering and you know for nhs workers you know every thursday at 8 8 p.m. and and there was an awful lot of you know we're all in this together um and as we know you know speaking from melbourne you know we know that the atmosphere of a second lockdown it does not is is void of that kind of feeling and it's in uh, it's um, so um I think that the the UK government squandered a lot of trust. You might remember there was um, something called The Lancet published uh, something recently about the so-called Cummings effect. And that was where Boris Johnson's senior advisor, uh, who is very much an ideologue of of the kind of less is more that you've pointed out, you know, the small government, you know, attacked the public service, which kind of erodes its ability to respond to um, crises like this. When he flouted rules that he'd helped set by driving across the country with his wife who had COVID symptoms. Um, You know, this, what this did um, was erode trust in government. But I think that it did that at the moment when the United Kingdom was coming out of its first wave. So, so we've yet to see what effects that will have on say public adherence to whatever messages they happen to be getting uh, from uh, from their local authorities, because the, the UK approach is currently, you know, a, a, a much more localised one than we're used to um, uh, in, in Australia. And um, the the message seems to be that people are confused about the message. So, okay. so, so I think, so I think that, yes, the, the, the problem is, is that, that part of the ideology that, that the, cons- the the governing Conservative Party have is has been to run is to be to talk down government and what it can do effectively for the last 40 years or more. And so when a, when a pandemic comes along and people actively want government to intervene, um, it, it's, the, the, its capacity to do so has been somewhat eroded. That is
0: such an important point, isn't it? I, I, I like this thought about fracturing. So Ben, I just want to follow that up. Because when you look at the anglosphere, as you mentioned, and the fracturing, it's actually quite weird because it's fracturing along the lines of nations or countries and within countries. So, as you mentioned, uh, local responses in the UK and definitely local responses within America, whereas I get a feeling that at least in Australia and New Zealand, we tend to have a nationwide response to it. Where is all this going to head in the longer term?
1: So when when we talk about fracturing in in political science, we we, we talk about the term polarisation. So we're always quite concerned about how polarised politics has become. And there, there is a risk at saying this, that there's a kind of a nostalgia that, you know, during the kind of the long economic boom of the uh, of the '40s to the to the '70s, and then in the sort of like good economic times of the '90s and 2000s, that everything was great and fantastic, and clearly it wasn't, right? But, but nevertheless, I do I do think that there is some evidence out there that 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 people's well parties and electorates positions have become slightly more polarized. I, I think I think the evidence is is surer on parties than it is on electorates. Um, but when you introduce devices like referendums or presidential, um, uh, presidential elections, which are basically binary choices, you're forcing people to either abstain or go into a yes, you know, one, one or the other, right? And, and that has a polarizing effect. So um, these cleavages um, and, and, and this fracturing uh, has been manifest. In various ways, through through the Brexit referendum, through the presidential elections in the United States, and, and if we think about various elections in Europe and so on, and, and even even in Australia, um, although differing systems produce differing results, right? But the point is, is that there is a kind of a tenor and tone to politics that um, is sharper than it used to be. And I think this is down to the so-called culture wars, or it's, uh, I won't get into the causality of it, but... What's happened is is that there's been a general consensus, you know, which, is, which has eroded recently, but, but that the, the, the neoliberal way of running the economy was the only show in town. Yeah. And the right thought they'd won that. But the left thought they'd won the cultural arguments, right? And, and so, you know, about um, uh, multiculturalism, about same sex marriage, about, you know, like the, the, all those kind of things that we would think of as social issues, right? Yeah. And, and I think that in the last decade, again, that the right, particularly, there's been a fracturing within the right as well. So there are kind of like just, um, if you like, traditional conservatives, but they're all now radical um, and, even, and even, you know, the so-called alt-right or the far-right. Um, there's been this kind of, this, this fracturing within the right and on the right of politics, which doesn't necessarily mean it's going to win, but there is a kind of an efflorescence of ideas um, and and all that's novel in politics in the last decade has come from the right, and the, and and if you like the traditional conservatives and the centre left are trying to catch up and respond to that, yeah. and so I think that responses to COVID have now f- fitted into this paradigm of culture wars. So y- you know the the question is not what to do, but who do you believe, yeah. and. Um, you know, we, we, because this is playing out in the United States with the election, we've got plenty of evidence of, of, of that um, going on there. So the, so the question is, well, you know, the president um, doesn't seem to want to wear a mask. We don't have to, you know, or, um, you know, the president survived it, um, presumably because he's packed full of steroids now. Uh, so we don't need to worry about it. You know, and, and he says that. And then, of course, the, the, the party line, it splits down the other way that Joe Biden wears the mask and so on. And same in the UK. And we come back to those Brexit cleavages, but the cleavages were also between young and old, uh, between, and, and between, I think this might be important, between educated and less educated. So, you know, basically, if, if you were tertiary educated, you, you voted to stay in the EU. And if you didn't have a tertiary educated, you voted to leave, right? And, and I think that there's something about that tertiary education, and there's something about that that gives you a sense of how knowledge is produced. And I think that when, when you get people who are presenting you with, you know, m- models and projections and, and all those kind of things that are used to combat the pandemic, um, if you have a comprehension of where that comes from, even if you don't really know exactly how it's produced, it seems less threatening than, than if you don't. And so, so I think the educational stuff is going to be another major cleavage when it comes to how, how societies can respond effectively to the pandemic
0: other issues, uh, Ben, very quickly. Um, you mentioned that uh, Scotland has a different and independent health system. Uh, I guess even during Brexit, you saw in, like, the push for independence. Um, what do you think is going to happen now when they've fumbled their response to COVID in the UK?
1: Yes. I mean, the, so, so the situation in Scotland is is different and it has been different for a while. The, the Scotland, Um, about 20 years ago, was given um, a lot more authority from the central government to make decisions over education and and health. And then, about 10 years ago, a secessionist government came into power, and it's always looking to maximise its chances of leaving the United Kingdom. And in 2014, uh, although it was unsuccessful, 45% of people voted to leave the UK, and that's actually quite high when you consider how long the union between Scotland and England has been in existence—more uh, than 300 years. So, what I think has happened is that there is, you know, the the, the secessionist party is still in in power. Um, it's basically a centre-left secessionist party, so it's much more keen to um, uh, to intervene than than the right-wing uh, party in in England and in, and in the United Kingdom under Boris Johnson and uh, i think that the the differing responses will will suggest a kind of a a governing competence for the secessionist party because they always sort of you know one of the things that people will ask is well you know what experience do they have how can they manage things they've been in power for 10 years now and they've managed a lot and i think that the response to covid will actually strengthen their chances of independence um uh, a it will suggest that they uh, have governing competence and and b the, the the differing responses and the worse responses in England will actually just be more grist to the mill. Opinion polls, if we can trust those things anymore, have suggested a slight majority in favour now of uh, leaving the UK rather than staying in. But but whether whether next year uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the secessionist Scottish National Party, will call a referendum um, uh, is 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 a very difficult and delicate. Um, uh, decision for for that party to make. If they if they don't get it right, um, that chance will have gone for another generation. I think so. But again, it's it's another instance of the of the fracturing that that you mentioned before, and that um, the United Kingdom uh, is not particularly united these days.
0: And, and this is a bit of a sensitive issue, and I don't want to take too much of your time. But clearly, it's sensitive, and therefore, I'll try to approach it sensitively. So. You, you have said that some governments are really hoping not to intervene and yet other governments have no problems intervening. Getting outside of the anglosphere sphere uh, right now, you actually have another dominant world ideology that has no problems uh, implementing, uh, if you like, um, big government control. And what the world sees are tariff wars and trade wars and mm. You know, territorial claims. Um, but of course, underlying it uh, seems to be a very large um, ideological confrontation. Um, but I don't want to make too much of the confrontation. I'm just really asking you, am I being too sensitive to the fact that really the, the contrasting ideologies will find it very difficult to back down, or can we somehow accept that we are different? Uh, in that uh, the world can move on without further fracturing?
1: Well, well, this is a huge question in international relations, David. Um, it's about rising and declining powers. I, you know, I, I, I suppose the the thing is, you're, you're, you're right, if we're talking about the People's Republic of China, we're, we're talking about, um, you know, here is a country in which um, intervention by government is, like, not a problem at all. In fact, it's... Um, you know d- despite the sort of the shift to a capitalist economy the the political instincts of of the party and there's only one are interventionist by its very nature i mean com- communism was about you know bringing about change through the machinery of government so you know on the other hand people have written off democracies you know many times in the past and 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 they come through strong so i think it i think it can be managed um i i think I, I think in many ways, you know, Trumpism is, is, a, is a spasm of decline. I mean, it's a, it's a symptom of decline. It's a spasm of decline uh, in the United States. And, and and it's a very difficult thing to then kind of, kind of manage decline. You know, there's a very depressing thesis in international relation that all rising you know, powers eventually conflict with the previous uh, hegemon. But, but history never always repeats itself entirely. So I, I remain optimistic. But... Um, uh, in terms of responses to, to pandemics and people, you know, often look to, to some of the Asian countries like South Korea, uh, those with the experience of SARS and sort of say, well, you know, this is good. I mean, w- whether that's to do with with um, their political systems or, 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 you know, all of those countries that have done quite well have, have got more interventionist political systems and perhaps um, neoliberal and Anglosphere traditions of um, of, of uh, liberty would uh, would would permit, but it is it is too late to to write them off too soon. Um, but uh, there's certainly room for improvement. You can say that.
0: And thank you for touching on a sensitive issue with me and for me. So, what are the lessons for Australia from all that you had told us?
1: I think the first lesson is that intervention is is effective. Um, uh, I I think. I think that there's, there's something to be learned about the interaction between the public health imperatives and the economic imperatives. Uh, I think that supporting uh, people throughout this, I, I think the lesson is that a lot of people want government support, they welcome government support. And if that's in the form of, uh, you know, what would be, you know, the, the, the common term for a job keeper, you know, would, would be sort of keeping that going even if it means tapering it out, like that, that that there is there is something to be to be said there. Um, I think that um, lots of other things happen under under you know in, in times of crisis, both good and bad. You know that that that, that politicians often see crisis as an opportunity, and uh, I think say something like you know close to my heart that the, the treatment of universities by the current government is. Left a lot to be uh, desired and, and weakened the position of research and universities in Australia um, for reasons that I'm not entirely um, could not be convinced were not ideological uh, rather than rational. So, so I think, I, I, but I think it's a it's a false dichotomy to talk about you know ra- rationality and policy formation because ideology always comes into it, uh, in my view. So, um, I th- I think what what I hope might come out of it is is a reappraisal of the value of, of ideologies that's, that preclude or, or, or weaken the scope of, of intervention through, through government, because I think um, that's what we need.
0: And if you had a message to the citizens of Australia and how we ought to think about our government or hope for in our government, what would you say to us?
1: Try and identify the ideologies that are motivating their uh, political decision-making. And I think that, that it, it comes down to two: uh, are, are they neoliberal libertarians? Do 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 they value economy and, and liberty, or, or or are they more interventionists uh, um, and collectivist in their in their instincts? And I guess and I guess you know the, the, the pandemic and its effects are shifting, uh, always, aren't they? And we've got to, to make some some really informed decisions as both you know, experts and citizens. Uh, about when is the right time to, to, to close things down and when is the right time to, to, to open, open things up and, and what kind of curtailments are we going to have to um, put up with in, over to achieve, in order to achieve an overall um, beneficial goal. So um, I, think, I think the succinct way of saying that, David, would be um, uh, stay informed and stay engaged and um, uh, stay safe.
0: And you have just taken me on a most interesting journey. You know, a lot of us as doctors think about the science and the medicine behind it. Um, it's just really interesting to get into a space uh, in your specialty, and um, I really appreciated your time.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Self-claim.